Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Jessica Bissett, Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm thrilled to introduce our moderator today, Jason Kelly, who will lead the conversation about the context and implications of the recently announced trilateral security pact between Australia, United Kingdom, and the United States, known as AUKUS. Briefly, Dr. Kelly is a historian of modern China. He is currently an assistant professor in the Strategy and Policy Department of the U.S. Naval War College. In addition, we are very fortunate that Jason is a fellow of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Public Intellectuals Program. Over to you, Jason, to introduce our speakers, Teresa Fallon and Richard McGregor. Okay, thanks, Jessica. I am very excited to moderate today's conversation on behalf of the National Committee. Uh, Joining me today to explore the motivations behind AUKUS and its implications are two experts, one from Brussels and one from Sydney. So first we have Teresa Fallon, founder and director of the Center for Russia, Europe, Asia Studies. Teresa's current research is on EU-Asia relations, maritime security, global governance, China's Belt and Road Initiative, and great power competition. We also have with us today Richard McGregor, Senior Fellow for East Asia at the Lowy Institute, Australia's premier foreign policy think tank. Richard is a former Beijing and Washington bureau chief for the Financial Times and author of numerous books on East Asia, including most recently, Xi Jinping, The Backlash, which was published in 2019. So Teresa and Richard, welcome to both of you and thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, it's great to be here. So there's there's a lot to cover and I wanna jump right into it, but I wanna start just briefly by providing a bit of context for anybody who may have, may not have been following developments in East Asia too closely over the past month or so. Just A couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, on September 15th, the US, the UK, and Australia announced the creation of a new trilateral security partnership uh, called AUKUS. The partnership is still taking shape, uh, and many of the finer points have yet to be worked out. But one of the central pillars is the decision by the US and the UK to provide a fleet of nuclear-powered, conventionally armed submarines to Australia. Now, this is obviously a long-term commitment involving the transfer of sensitive nuclear technology, and it's going to take some time for the program to take shape. Uh, Before the effort was even underway, however, the submarine component of AUKUS ran into a bit of controversy, particularly in France. In 2016, Paris signed a multi-billion dollar agreement to build conventionally powered submarines for Australia, a deal that was canceled abruptly in the wake of AUKUS. So there's a lot to talk about today. Let's let's jump right into it. Uh, Richard, let's start with you. Can you just sort of set the scene for us? So what are the basic elements of the recent submarine deal among the US, UK, and Australia? And how is it different from the earlier deal between Australia and France? Uh, thanks, Jason. Well, the key difference is that um, Australia will now be getting, in theory, nuclear-powered submarines as opposed to the French vessels, which were diesel-powered. The core difference, I guess, is the nuclear-powered submarines are, you know, more effective. They're longer range, they can stay underwater uh, for longer periods. In other words, they'll be able to work not just close to Australia, but far from Australia, and in theory, 
uh, with allies like Japan and the United States. And of course, the obvious question is, why would Australia want to do that? Why would they buy a certain kind of boat in 2016, the French boat, ditch that uh, and try to get another one in 2021? And the answer to that question, like most things in the world these days, is China. Uh, and Australia's government judged uh, in their own words, that the, the strategic situation of the country had changed, changed dramatically in the last five years, and they thought they needed a better boat. Um, and so they decided to go for the US or UK boat uh, uh, instead of the French one. Now, just finally, um, uh, it doesn't mean we're going to immediately get any nuclear-powered submarines. In theory, we don't get them until 2040 unless we can borrow some or rent some from the US and the UK. So there's lots of you know, issues and problems with this deal, quite apart from the controversy with the French, but basically it, it all comes down to China and that's what's driven the change. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Teresa, let's, let's stick with the controversy with France for just a second here. So French leaders feel that they were blindsided by the deal and learned of it only according to reporting a few hours before AUKUS was made public. This apparently last minute cancellation of the contract, uh, Australia's contract with France, led the French government to respond by temporary, temporarily recalling its ambassadors from both Canberra and Washington. Um, was this an overreaction? And could the US have handled the announcement differently? And, and maybe even more importantly, what's the way forward for the United States and, and France? Thank you for that question. It's real honor to be with all of you today. Uh, France was incensed, and this really struck a nerve in French idea of where they fit on the international stage. Their biggest fear is to be considered irrelevant. So there's two approaches to how the U.S. handled this. One narrative is that the U.S. just was focusing on the Asia Pacific and didn't really think about European responses. Either way that this would insult the French because that they weren't being considered how their feelings might be hurt in all of this. And the second is that the French would have possibly scuppered the deal. So that was why it was kept so secret. It wasn't leaked anywhere. Very few people knew about it. And at the G7, you see all this kind of backslapping with Macron and, and Biden, and he wasn't told about this, this eminent deal. So either scenario is really negative for, for the French. And so they try to Europeanize their response by trying to get other member states to support them. But in reality, Germany, other member states remained rather silent on it. They did get a statement from the European Commission President Ursula van der Leyen because she owes her job to Macron. He suggested her for the, the position and her job is coming up for renewal. So I think that uh, this idea of strategic autonomy uh, is something that Macron has had for quite some time. If you look at, back at statements he made even before this whole AUKUS ruckus, uh, he said that NATO was brain dead um, after the EU, after the uh, G7 summit, or I'm sorry, after uh, Biden spoke uh, at the Munich Security Conference, both Macron and Merkel said that they were not going to join any sort of uh, counterbalancing democratic bloc to balance against China. So there was always this kind of feeling that maybe they weren't really with them. And then finally with the NATO uh, communique, which he had signed onto and he agreed, and there's actually, China has mentioned in that many times, he signed the agreement then shortly afterwards criticized it saying he didn't see China in the North Atlantic. So there were already some tensions brewing in the relationship before this, but this has really been uh, 
exploded and it's kind of propelling the narrative of strategic autonomy, at least the French view of it. And now we have an election year in France, so this is playing well with the domestic audience. Everyone is kind of siding with Macron on this issue. Uh, it is seen, he, you know, it's really key uh, to understand how they see themselves on the international stage. And just yesterday, uh, French minister uh, Le Maire said, we expect that the US will recognize us along with China, the US and the EU as three superpowers. So I think we have to understand how the French see themselves on the international stage. Okay, thank you. So you, you just touched briefly on um, reactions among other EU members. I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit. Uh, do you think, uh, is this seen as evidence of the US abandoning commitments to the transatlantic alliance in the EU more broadly outside of France? and? And could this even lead to a consensus in Brussels that a more independent European foreign policy is actually warranted at this point? Well, ever since the pivot to Asia was announced, at first with the Obama administration, this has been a long-term fear of the EU. And so, but they really haven't responded by actually increasing more of their defense spending. The US needs a, a more well-resourced Europe for them to take care of their own neighborhood. So I think that this idea of burden, it's not even burden sharing anymore, it's burden shifting. The US wants Europe to do more in their neighborhood. Ideally, it would be a strengthened European pillar within NATO, but under the French narrative, it would be France kind of ruling, um, taking care of defense. Now, the timing is quite interesting because after 16 years of having Angela Merkel as chancellor of Germany, she was always very, uh, uh, she protective of NATO, she supported NATO. And we saw this kind of disagreement between the German defense minister, AKK, and Macron play out in the opinion pages of, of the press here in Europe. And so Germany and France uh, have different views on strategic autonomy. In addition to that, you have Poland. I just came from Warsaw and it's fresh in my mind how the Poles and other Central Eastern European member states are very concerned about the strategic narrative along with the Baltic states, because they fear that France, when push came to shove, wouldn't really be there to protect them. So they feel much safer with under the NATO umbrella. So I think that uh, under Macron, who will be president of the European Rotating Council beginning January 1st, also in, a, in an election year, he's going to push this really hard. But I think it remains to be seen. Uh, there's not a lot of will to spend money on defense right now across Europe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I want to stick with the theme of reactions. Richard, we'll get to you in just a second. But Teresa, do you, uh, do you foresee China or Russia, to sort of broaden the perspective a little bit, taking advantage of this rift between France on the one side and the United States, Australia, and the UK on the other? And can we expect maybe even any sort of grand diplomatic gestures or overtures from Beijing toward Paris in this new context? Oh, uh Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, is having a phone call with Xi Jinping tomorrow. So I think that uh, whenever there is a small rift, there, Beijing is willing and very happy to drive a wedge into it. So I think that, yes, uh, this narrative is very powerful. And I think Beijing wants to keep Europe neutral. That's all they need to do. They don't need to pull Europe into their, their orbit. They just need to keep Europe neutral. And so I think these narratives of you know, countries have asked, why did the US humiliate France so badly? Why couldn't they have come up with a better diplomatic package to let them save face? So I think the Chinese are very sensitive to that. And also, it's very fascinating how China is really focusing on France. For example, they were building a Huawei factory in France. And the, the other more controversial issue is the peace 
uh, cable. It's Pakistan, North Africa, and it will land in Marseille, France. And so this will undermine security issues for NATO in regard to security of communication. So it's interesting that out of all the countries in Europe, uh, France was chosen to have this cable, this very huge cyber optic cable land in France. And this, many people at NATO are very concerned about this. Mm, okay, um, let's, thank you. Let's, let's stick with China for the moment and it's, let's turn to its relations with Australia. Richard, so for several years, it seems the narrative has been that Australia has had to carefully navigate what's often seen as a zero sum strategic competition between China and the United States. Uh, and in reacting to the deal, the Global Times, a, a popular newspaper that in China that sometimes skews a bit on the nationalistic side, uh, has stated that Australia is essentially choosing to become an adversary of China with this deal. Have we reached the end of this balancing act narrative, do you think? And can we assume that Australia will now proceed in lockstep with US-led Indo-Pacific strategy? Well, so the Global Times has said a lot of things about Australia, much worse than the quote you just mentioned there. I think they were said, said we were like a piece of chewing gum stuck to China's shoe. Um, I think we're still stuck there at the moment and uh, destined to be there for a long time because of the uh, AUKUS deal. Um, yeah, look, relations between Australia and China uh, were peaked in 2014 when Xi Jinping came to Australia uh, as president and addressed both houses of parliament, visited Tasmania, which meant he'd visited every Australian state, very rare for any foreign leader, because he'd been to Australia a few times before that. Since then, uh, things have changed dramatically. There's been a whole range of, you know, um, fractious bilateral issues or bilateral disputes, I should say, over everything from Taiwan to Huawei to Hong Kong to the South China Sea, uh, you know, hacking, all, all those sorts of things. Um, and then came uh, Australia's call for an independent inquiry into the origins of uh, COVID-19. And if you were looking at a mountain and seeing a, a mountain collapse, all those other little issues, that was a little bit of rock off the side and dirt here or there. But when Australia made the COVID inquiry call, that's when the whole mountain collapsed. And that's when China started its um, uh, policy of trade sanctions or trade coercion against Australia, basically banning a lot of Australian products from going to China. Um, so I think, um, the old narrative, as you, as you said, was, you know, Australia didn't have to choose between its security partner, the United States, and its commercial partner, China. Well, <clears throat> we definitely have chosen, and we've chosen the United States. Uh, it doesn't mean our commercial relationship with China is over, but it's diminished. Does that then mean, uh, as your question said, that we are in lockstep with the United States? Uh, not on everything, but on the big issues uh, and on the big judgments, and that is basically about uh, uh, China and China's plans to dominate the Indo-Pacific in different ways. Um, yes, I think we're firmly aligned with the United States in that respect, uh, um, along in particular with Japan. But yeah, I think you know uh, the, the die is very much cast, I think. And that, just to, just to clarify, when you say the big issues and the die being cast, you're talking primarily about the, the security side of... of that, the... That's right. I mean, Australia okay. has chosen, maybe like most countries do, the, they've have gone the, the national security. Um, and one of the most interesting things about the debate in Australia is that 
the government, um, even though I think they've handled a lot of things quite clumsily, including the unraveling of the submarines deal, uh, that public opinion has become very anti-China or anti the CCP. Um, and it's very difficult uh, in the current circumstances with all manner of abuse coming from the Global Times and the like, uh, to get a dialogue going with China again. We have not had ministerial contact with China for about two and a half years at all, none. And that just tells you how bad the relationship is and um, uh, we're, we're in the sort of, you know, the China's of China, China has got us in the freezer, if you like, um, and we're destined to stay there for some time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Teresa, shifting gears to China's relations with Europe in the days ahead, uh, it seems, and you mentioned this earlier, you mentioned Angela Merkel, it seems that um, a new era has arrived in European politics with Angela Merkel stepping down as German chancellor and really as de facto leader of the EU. With a new center-left coalition likely to form the next German government, how can we expect this changing of the guard to affect EU-China relations uh, moving forward? Yeah, that's a very good question. Now we have to wait to see which government comes out right now. They're negotiating, but it looks as if Olaf Scholz will be the chancellor and it will be a stoplight, uh, a traffic light uh, coalition. So the, it will be very interesting to see how they balance this out. But at the end of the day, even if the Green Party is made, say, foreign minister, it's the chancellor that really makes foreign policy, as we've seen with Heiko Maas. So I think that we'll see more consistency in German policy, because even when Greens win an office inside Germany, they tend to favor German business, because that's just where the votes are. And I, I think that there's a lot of um, concern that there will be a reset with China, but I think that business interests will really dictate the future of that. Now, if you look at the next five EU member states combined, clearly Germany is larger than that. So they, under Merkel, she has carefully driven EU foreign policy on China. Uh, what this will mean for NATO is the key question, I think, especially with Macron, you know, the seat's barely cold. Um, they haven't called a new uh, government yet in Germany, but Macron is kind of biting at the bit to be the next leader of Europe, but it remains to be seen if he'll be able to do that. Mm. Okay, thank you. Richard, what about the UK? Let's, let's turn our focus to the United Kingdom. So of the three AUKUS partners, the UK seems to be uh, a, almost the odd one out. Um, what does British participation in this agreement reveal about post-Brexit UK ambitions, both in the Asia-Pacific, but also even more in a global sense? Yes, well, there's a number of ways of looking at that. I think, um, you know, to, to start with, the UK is the only country that the US has shared its nuclear-powered submarine technology with, and that was done, I think, in the late 1950s. So if you're going to partner with the US on that technology, you can also partner with the UK because the UK might be a trusted way of, you know, passing that on to Australia or helping Australia build the boat. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is that um, in Australia has an historically long, uh, close relationship with the UK. The Australians, when they tried to get this deal going, might have actually quite cleverly, I think, first approached the UK. Uh, the UK post-Brexit is looking for all manner of deals of, of any kind, headline grabbing, big or small or whatever, uh, to reassert itself as an independent power, which with great agency outside of Europe. And so it's either 
um, the UK regaining its geopolitical mojo, if you like, by uh, asserting itself effectively in, an, in, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we'll see if that is sustained. Or you can be very cynical about it and say it's like a fabulous post-Brexit arms deal. Because even though Australian politicians promise that most of the boats will be built in Australia, uh, the truth is we will struggle to do that. And I think the British might like to build them um, in a, a dockyard in uh, Northern England um, where those sorts of jobs have been scarce. So it, it, it's, an, it's an, you know, a number of um, factors there. Finally, of course, um, you know, the UK, Australia uh, and the US are the core of the Five Eyes intelligence uh, uh, um, group, um, long-standing, highly effective um, uh, geopolitical intelligence sharing mechanism. And I think this kind of Five Eyes has been playing a greater role these days outside of simply intelligence sharing. They're talking, uh, their finance ministers are talking, they're home security ministers are talking and the like, and this strengthens that part of it as well. Unfortunately, in the Indo-Pacific, it looks like a slight reassertion of the Anglosphere, um, but nonetheless, they are very much trusted partners who feel they can work together. Richard, I want to come back to something that you mentioned uh, a bit earlier in the conversation. Uh, the, the nuclear submarines that we're talking about underlying this deal probably won't be seaworthy uh, for another two decades until about 20. 40, more or less. Uh, how have the United States and Australia taken into account this, this long gap between the announcement of the deal and its uh, implementation, its completion, especially since the deal may have opened up new and potentially negative trajectories for both countries with uh, Beijing? Absolutely. It's a good question. Um, uh, the first thing to say is they haven't really explained it yet. When they announced the AUKUS deal, they said, we're going to talk about it for 18 months and work out exactly how we're going to execute the plan. So the truth is we don't know. Since then, there's been a number of interviews with uh, American and British uh, naval commanders and figures. The US basically hasn't got any room at its Virginia dockyards to build any more uh, more quickly, and they haven't got any to spare to lend to Australia. Uh, and it's difficult in the UK as well. Now, Australia has a pretty average record in defence procurement. Um, and so one wonders whether we'll ever get them, actually, uh, or whether we'll get a different sort of boat. I should say, though, the AUKUS deal is not just about submarines. That was the understandably the headline-grabbing part of it. It's also about um, sharing technology on missiles, uh, um, intermediate and long-range missiles, which could be placed in Australia. It's about AI. It's about quantum mechanics as applied to uh, defence technology. So it's lots of other different things. But the submarines is maybe the most difficult and the most controversial part of it. Yeah, it's definitely the, taking the lion's share of the headlines. Uh, so I have one last question. I'll just open it up to, to both of you, whoever wants to jump in. Um, one view is that with the sale of these submarines that we're talking about to Australia, the United States is essentially elevating a middle power to take a greater and more active role in regional security. Do you think this signals a trend towards a sort of decentralization of the Asia-Pacific regional order? And, and if so, how does, how does the quad fit into this potential shift? Um, shall I go, Teresa, or do you want to go first? Go ahead. 
Richard. Yeah. Well, I think I think this has been happening already. Um, the old alliance system in the Asia Pacific, as we used to call it, was a kind of hubs and spokes with the US at the centre. Uh, and going out to each individual alliance partner. These days, and really the last five or 10 years, it's become a much more sort of networked agreement, uh, network set up. In other words, Australia, Japan, Japan, the Philippines, Japan, India, Australia, India, <clears throat> Japan, Vietnam, and the like. In other words, there's, I think all of these countries have recognized for some years that the US is in relative decline, not decline, absolute decline. And they all have to do more uh, with the rise of China. So um, I think it reflects that. I think the US wants to elevate any middle power that wants to be elevated uh, or is willing to be elevated um, in the contest with China. Uh, and that goes for Japan, if that you call that a, a middle power. It goes for Singapore. It goes for the Philippines, where the US has been patching up relations. And of course, the Quad is at the heart of that. Uh, and the Quad has actually developed much more quickly than, than many people would have thought two, three years ago, all because of China. Mm. Yeah, okay. Teresa, do you, you want to jump in and add your thoughts to this too? The French have been very active with the Quad plus one format, for example. And so this is one way to try to maybe uh, make amends with France, having them give the, giving them a bigger role in the region. Also, France, as I should point out, they are the only EU member state that really has territory in this region. So they have uh, one and a half million people, they have a huge blue territory. And even though there are frictions right now in the relationship, I think that the US-French cooperation in the region has been very good in the past. And France at the end of the day really does need the US to help protect these, these islands that, uh, that they have in the region, especially there's going to be an election coming up uh, in regard to this country getting its freedom. So, or independence, I should say. So uh, I think China will move into any sort of vacuum that's in this region. And although the French are, French are very, very upset, I think that uh, the US needs to work closely with their transatlantic uh, relations much more carefully and be probably more astute. They have to connect the dots between what they're doing in Asia, also with their, the Europeans, because as we've seen, Xi Jinping will try to exploit any sort of uh, divisions. And you mentioned earlier about Russia, you know, we're very concerned how if something does happen in the Asia Pacific, will Europe be prepared to fend off any sort of attack from Russia, say in Ukraine or Central Eastern Europe. So I think that Europeans, although they say they want to have a geopolitical commission, we're not really seeing a lot of geopolitical thinking. The State of the Union address was just uh, about a week and a half ago, and I only saw the word geopolitical appear in it once, and that was in regard to COVID. And I think that the Europeans really are kind of worried about the state of the evolving international order and there really isn't a lot of leadership, especially now with Merkel leaving the stage. And second, uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy was announced the same day as AUKUS. So uh, the high representative Joseph Burrell, when he was you know, announcing this Indo-Pacific strategy that they had been working on and input from all the member states, the only questions he got were about AUKUS. So I think that maybe a little more uh, working together with allies would actually improve, you know, it was a good thing that the Europeans came up with a transatlantic, uh, I'm sorry, an Indo-Pacific strategy. So they should try to actually encourage it and not kind of steal the limelight with AUKUS. That's just maybe unfortunate timing, but I think uh, if diplomats were paying closer attention, I think these things could be avoided. 
So are you, are you optimistic that, that the United States and the EU can, can work better uh, to kind of manage those slips that we've seen with the rollout of AUKUS and, and uh, toward a, a common trajectory? Well, it seemed that the Biden administration had kind of a very short honeymoon. Uh, I think it kind of expired even before he came to office with the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, which was pushed through. It's a EU-China investment agreement. And Jake Sullivan kind of you know, sent a tweet out saying, we would really like it if you wait and we can talk about this together in order to work together as a transatlantic alliance to try to get more leverage on China's trade practices. Nevertheless, it was pushed through under German chancellors rotating European Council presidency. So I think the Europeans sent a message at the very, very beginning of uh, the Biden administration before even had taken the oath of office that China is something that they are going to work closely with. So I think uh, the Europeans don't see China as a threat. They see it as an economic opportunity. And I think that the, one of the problems that could have occurred after the AUKUS fallout, um, France kind of postponed the EU, EU Australia trade talks by one month, and they tried to postpone the TTC, the uh, Transatlantic Technology Cooperation uh, meeting that just took place in Pittsburgh. And so they were unable to do that because cooler heads within the EU uh, reigned, and there's an understanding that the EU and the US have to work together on trade issues. So that technology that will be blocked in the US, China can't just go to Europe and buy. So I think that there needs to be close closer cooperation. And the idea of always framing things in an anti-China narrative is counterproductive. So I think that uh, if the US frames things in a more, this will be good for your economy, you can make chips in, in Europe, I think that that would gain far more traction. I think that uh, the Europeans are a bit reticent about what's happening. But I, at the same time, I think the US must continue to educate about what's happening in the region. And we see Japanese diplomats doing that and they've been extremely effective with that. Okay, thank you. Um, I, so we have maybe one or two more minutes. Is there is there anything that I missed, anything that I should have asked that you'd like to add uh, in the remaining minute or so that we have left, Richard or Teresa? That's a terrible thing to ask me. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think, why don't you go first, Teresa? Okay, I just wanted to add that the Europeans appear to be adopting a hedging as well as a strategy with the US because after four years of the Trump administration, that's when the strategic autonomy narrative started to gain traction. And so then they had the Biden administration come in and who said, you know, we're back, we wanna work with allies. And then these things have happened, AUKUS and um, Afghanistan. So I think that there's a big question mark about the future and who might be the next president if they'll have a return to Trump. So I think the Europeans are a bit hesitant and are, are carefully hedging, although some will still you know, try to make sure that they contribute appropriately to NATO. But I think that there's kind of a new era of, of hedging within Europe. Yes, I was just, I'd add very quickly, uh, as Teresa said earlier, Europe is definitely in play as far as China is concerned. But it does seem to me that China's behavior over the last five years has been uh, so dramatic uh, and so sort of assertive that, you know, I, I, I do, and you look at public opinion in Europe, it's changing. And I, it's, I wonder when that will uh, flow through to politics um, and whether in fact there will be any shift in the sort of influence, for example, the uh, German business community on the German government and whether there'll be any change there at all. But AUKUS, I think, has certainly set that back. 
uh, because of the damage of the prestige of uh, the French, and they'll take some time to recover, I think. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. There, there's so much more I'm sure that we could get into, but we are running up against the clock. I think we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank you both again for taking the time to be with us here today and to help us to get better understanding of AUKUS and why it matters. Uh, we hope that those of you who tuned in found the conversation interesting and informative and that you'll join us for future National Committee programming. Thanks again, everybody. Take care and uh, have a great day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.